Mark chapter 11. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11. We will be, Lord willing, finishing up Mark 11 today and diving into the 12th chapter beginning next week. Mark 11 has been full of surprises. Mark 11 has been familiar territory that we have gleaned fresh insights about. With Jesus coming to Jerusalem, the final week of his life, cursing a tree as an illustration of cursing the nation, cleansing the temple as an illustration of the need for cleansing at the hierarchical leadership level in Israel. Let me just tell you, over the next few weeks, we are going to walk with Jesus through a gauntlet of difficulty. He has picked very tender scabs and poked men in the eyes who are not going to like it. Verse 27 introduces our paragraph for today. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple... The chief priests and the scribe and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. And you answer me. Then... I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, Well, if if we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Wow. What a dialogue. One of the things that most alerted the authorities in Jerusalem to the miracle worker in Galilee earlier in his ministry was his authority, his unparalleled and even unquestionable authority as he taught. Just a little review, back in chapter 1, Mark 1.22, they were amazed at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one having authority, exousia. Power, gravity, explanation, authority. Not, not as the scribes. You could translate that to say, he had authority not like their theologians. Then down in Mark 1.27, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. They had never seen anyone with the kind of power and authority with his words and his teaching. And this 
situation, casting out the demons as Jesus. The next chapter, Mark 2. But so that you may know that the Son of God has authority on the earth to forgive sins. This is after healing the paralytic. He said to the paralytic, rise and pick up your, your blanket. The response, he got up immediately and picked up the pallet went out of the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and glorifying God and saying, listen, they were saying this up in Galilee, 100 miles north of Jerusalem where we're finding Jesus today. We have never seen anything like this. Can we just pause devotionally for a moment? If you truly read the Gospels, if you truly understand the New Testament, if you see how the Older Testament points to the person of Christ, the right response is, We've never seen anything like this man. To encounter Jesus is to be immediately overwhelmed with who he is, what he said, how he said what he said, what he was able to do in his miracles, his control over nature, his control over the demonic realm. We've never seen anything like this. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, some three years before we find Jesus in Jerusalem, Matthew 28 says, excuse me, Matthew 7, verse 28 says, When Jesus had finished these words, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and Matthew says it again, not as the scribes. From early in his ministry, Jesus was set in stark contrast to the other teachers in the synagogues and on the temple. The theologians of the day taught, but they were always quoting this rabbi and that tradition and this man and that man, and they got into serious conflict. In fact, the, 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 the leaders on the Temple Mount, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the elders were in constant conflict with each other, but they will find a common enemy on this day. Jesus' reputation was prodigious and unparalleled. They were on the Temple Mount hearing about this miracle worker up 100 miles north in Galilee. They actually several times sent delegations to go up and shut him up and shut him down because his authority and his teaching and his power was a threat to theirs. Now, again, this Nazarene comes to Jerusalem. But this is no normal week. This is Passover week. Literally, north of 100,000 people would have cycled through Jerusalem this week. It was packed. The busiest week of the year in Jerusalem. He is the talk of the town. Remember, only a few months earlier, he raised Lazarus from the dead. You think that would get you a reputation? But remember this. There existed on the Temple Mount a complicated and, and complete system of authority among the men, the Sanhedrin is what, what they're called in Jerusalem. These authorities were chief priests that had a rotating cycle. They were scribes, the theologians, the Pharisees were the scribes. And the elders, these were the representatives of all the tribes who would come together and gather in Jerusalem for a term where they would be almost like senators and reason together. These three groups did not like each other very much. They competed over who really had the authority. However, the words and the works of Jesus were saturated with such divine, indescribable, 
unparalleled authority that the people were responding to him. We've never heard anything like this. His popularity could not be ignored by the religious leaders operating on that temple mount. The Sanhedrin, which is the collection, it's the final kind of senate between the elders, the scribes, and the, uh, the chief priests. All knew about him. He was teaching in the open courts. In fact, this whole scene happens, according to Matthew, with Jesus going under one of the colonnades, one of the shady areas, and gathering a crowd, of an unimaginable crowd around him, just teaching about God, teaching about the Scriptures. So the challenge of this scene is no surprise. His popularity could not be ignored. He was drawing more crowds than they were. Jesus comes into the temple on this Tuesday morning, begins teaching. This draws the direct ire and attention of these groups together called the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the elders, and the chief priests. And they decide to set a trap so that they can ask him something publicly. He will answer wrongly. They can put him in his place and finally say that's a, a, no, uh, that's a man from, from Galilee that no one needs to pay any attention to. They thought they could expose Jesus as a rookie theologian, a first-year Bible student, as a theological fraud. And the launching point of their attack was Jesus' authority or his right to do what he did and teach what he taught. I mean, think about this. They have this whole system, and, and they were saying, who gives you the right to come and upset our system? Jesus had been operating as one who gave access to God outside the temple. And guess what? So did his cousin, John the Baptist. That's important. They do not believe his authority comes from God. They want to expose him as a fraud. In other words, he was not authorized by God to heal the sick and give the lame the ability to walk and to cure the blind from their from their um, uh, blindness and the deaf from their deafness. He, he had no authority from God. To say, How dare you help someone without our oversight? You hear what's going on here? They were the givers of grace and mercy and, and power. Jesus throughout Mark has basically retreated into the shadows. Even doing major miracles, raising Jairus' daughter from the dead and saying, shh. Don't tell anybody. Now he hides no longer. He's drawing a crowd in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in the direct line of sight as the Sanhedrin. Now, a quick note about the section we're about to begin. What we're starting today introduces seven little stories. We're going to go over these in the coming weeks. Seven stories that all begin with this passage and all catalog his conflict with the religious system on the temple and the religious leadership of the Jews. He uses these stories to illustrate that the person and glory of Jesus Christ is singularly most important. Mark does. 
Mark also says that Jesus fulfilled the intent of temple worship, that Jesus judged the temple system as God in the flesh, that in his ministry, he made temple worship and its system wither up from the roots. They were under a curse and under the judgment of God, and 40 years later, every single stone on that temple mount would be overturned as a result of his direct cursing. Mark also outlines these conflicts to show us that the Jewish religious system outright, unequivocally rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So this morning we're going to look at this first story. Just a little head start. Next week is an address to, uh, it's a parable to the same group of people who are listening to him and it doesn't end so well. You're welcome to read ahead. This first story here with the conflict between Jesus' divine authority and John the Baptist's authority is a uh, coercive, extortive attempt of the people to embarrass and humiliate Jesus. So we're just going to break this down and look at it as the scene unfolds. I want to find with you Jesus' authority questioned in three movements, three simple scenes, three movements. And these flow just like the divine mind of order you might expect. The first is in verses 28, 27 and 28, the trap set. There's a trap, and these men set it. Verse 27, they, that is Jesus and the disciples, came again, that is the third day after the, the triumphal entry on Sunday, uh, uh, the, the, the cursing of the fig tree on Monday and his teaching on the temple, him leaving bewildered and then comes back on Tuesday now. They came again to Jerusalem. Now just stop right there. That is such a rich statement. He's already told his disciples the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem when he was down in Perea, down in the, in the uh, Dead Sea area. He's going to go up to Jerusalem. They are going to set traps and suffer, uh, bring him to suffering and kill him. And he keeps going back to Jerusalem. Indicating his purposes were far more than the avoidance of pain. They came again to Jerusalem and... As he was walking around in the temple, this would have probably been the court of the Gentiles where he had access to everybody in a place to have a large crowd. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Matthew and Luke both tell us that they came to him while he was giving a discourse, while he was teaching. So he stops probably in the colonnade with some shade. Uh, there's a massive crowd that's around him and guess what? Not around the Sanhedrin. The third day in a row, the beginning of Passover week, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming through that city. And being Passover week, think about this. We know this from historical records. This was a week of pomp and regalia for the Sanhedrin. They loved to put on their flashy robes that week and walk around and let everybody say, oh, there's a member of the Sanhedrin. They were, they were momentary celebrities and they loved every minute of it. Walking around the temple expecting lots of oohs and ahs. They were celebrities in their own minds. Now comes the Nazarene, the Galilean, the man from up north, the miracle worker. Oh, they knew of him. They knew of his works. They knew of his reputation. They had already sent at least two delegations up to try to confront him in Galilee. We saw that earlier in Mark. 
We also know that just a few months earlier than this, just two miles from where they were standing, around the, the, the corner on the uh, uh, Mount of Olives over in Bethany, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. He was the talk of the town. For the third day, he's teaching on the Temple Mount on their home court, if you want to think of it as a sports analogy. They are perturbed. They are agitated. They are nervous. They are furious. So, these common enemies with each other, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priest appointed by the Sadducees, the elders, the representatives of the tribes of Israel who were together, especially that week, who did not like each other, fought over power, they instantly become allies with the common enemy of Jesus because he threatened them all. They gang up and they attack. Three groups with a long history of conflict coming together because of Christ. Hey, quick footnote, by the way. Um, we just studied this a few weeks ago, it feels like. The second time in Mark, uh, Mark, this is the second time I, I should say that Mark records the Pharisees questioning the credentials of Jesus. It's the second time he refused to provide them also. Back in Mark chapter 8, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The people who were looking at him there trying to trap him. They said, we want you to prove yourself. And he said, no way. Now they're asking him again in front of everybody, prove yourself, thinking he can't do it. So they'll catch him in a trap. These three groups, I've mentioned them already. Very interesting. Chief priests. They were operators of the sacrificial system. All, almost all of them were Sadducees, the liberals of the day. The group that met Jesus might have also included, think about this, Caiaphas and Annas. They were high priests who will, in just a few hours, just a couple days, be the judges of the judge of the world. It's hard to imagine that this confrontation happened without these two men there. Just remember that when we get into the latter chapters of Mark. The scribes were also there, primarily Pharisees. We know the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along very well. They were the authorities on Jewish law. They were the conservatives. They, they were not only the conservatives, they added to the law. They added things that were silly so they could obey those extra uh, uh, points of obedience and look even more holy in people's eyes. And then, as I said, the elders, that was the a time in ancient Israel, especially the week of Passover, where the representatives of the tribes would come together as the elders, the representatives of Israel, and they would, they would meet with the Sanhedrin. They were part of the Sanhedrin. They would decide policy for the nation. Now, the existence of these three groups is significant. Turn back for a moment to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. 120 or so miles north in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you say I am? And, and Peter gets it perfectly right. You're the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. 
Right after that, his response to Peter is this. Think carefully about this response now that we're standing on the Temple Mount with these three groups. Jesus, Mark 8, 31, Jesus began to teach them, the disciples, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. That, friends, is no coincidence. He knew exactly who would be there waiting on him. He knew exactly what they wanted to do. He knew exactly what they were going to do. And so we see Jesus standing here as a direct fulfillment of his own prophecy in Mark 8.31 that the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes would reject him. Back to Mark 11, verse 28. And began saying to them, the Greek indicates that they didn't ask once. They, they, kept, they were peppering him with questions. They, they, they kept you know, maybe one group and then another group. And they, they were asking the same things from different angles. And you see that by how Mark describes the, the questioning. They began saying to him, by what authority are you doing? And then there's this next phrase. Or in other words, who gave you the authority to do these things? You are quite a disturbance, Jesus, of Nazareth from Galilee. They were in effect saying, who or what gives you the right to take our positions of authority? You are not a part of the temple structure, the temple hierarchy. You're not a part of the Sanhedrin. You're a country hick from Nazareth. Remember, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel's asked. Jesus, this is important, like John the Baptist, was operating a biblical way to have access to God that did not go through the temple. That infuriated these men. He was out of bounds. Trap is set. Secondly, we find the genius response. <laughs> as, you, as if you wouldn't expect anything else, the genius response. How will Jesus respond to this trap? And Jesus said to them, I love this. He engages it right on. And instead of saying, let me answer your question, he does what he often does. He said, I will ask you one question, not a question, I will ask you one question, a definitive question, a question that is going to be so revelatory about what you think and what I think, and the difference between that, it is utterly significant that you answer this. One question, and you answer me, he says. Then he sets up an if-then and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So, so you see the setup? All right, I, I don't mind answering your question. I'm happy to answer the question. He has an answer to that question, as you'll see next week in the parable of the vine growers. But before he answers them, he, he says, I have a question for you. You answer this. Now, remember, there is a Matthew and Luke tell us there's a massive crowd around it. You can hear a pin drop. Probably after you heard the crowds jumping in with the Pharisees trying to get their favor and asking him the same question. And then he stops and he just puts his 
proverbial finger in their chest. It says, I have a question for you. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, from heaven or from men? And then the Greek is explicit. Answer me. Give me your answer. This question is not only immaterial, it is ingenious. An accepted rabbi tradition and fashion of dialogue was to answer a question with a question so that you get down to the heart of the issue. That's exactly what he's doing as the master rabbi. His question is deliberately calculated to both indirectly answer their question, which he does, and to simultaneously shame them before the people. The Lord declines to answer their question unless, conditionally, they answer a question he has for them. He queries them about his cousin. You remember that John the Baptist is the cousin of the Lord Jesus. He was uh, more than likely grew up knowing about, spending vacations, going down from from the north to the south uh, with his aunt and his uncle and his cousin. They knew each other very well. And the question is simple, and it is penetrating. Here's the question. Where did John the Baptist get his authority? They're asking Jesus, where did you get your authority? He said, before I answer that, let's, let's settle this. Where did John the Baptist get his authority? By baptism, the baptism of John the Baptist, or John, Jesus was summarizing his entire ministry, not just his dunking people in the Jordan River. And by heaven, did it come from heaven, he asks He means God himself. Did this come from God's authority, God's prerogative to give John authority in what he did and what he preached? Jesus wanted them to answer if they knew who gave John the Baptist his authority before he tells them where his own authority came from. Was it God or just an earthly authority granted by the people and garnered by his popularity? Can we just say that John the Baptist doesn't really appear as someone who would be, you know, the most popular guy, dressing in unfinished, untanned leather and and eating locusts and honey, living out in the desert and the wilderness, calling people to repentance, charging the Pharisees. You don't think they remember when the Pharisees came to him to be baptized? And he said, you brood of vipers, who sent you? There's a long history of conflict between John and these same men. And here's the genius. Since John had clearly testified, think about this, to Jesus, remember his baptism? John testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the one who would take away the sin of the world. Since John had clearly testified to Jesus as the Messiah, back in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, The correct answer to Jesus' question about John would lead to the correct answer about his own authority. If they had answered that correctly, this could have gone much better. Think about John's ministry. I trust that one of the heroes of your home, one of the heroes with your children, is John the Baptist. He preached repentance for the forgiveness of sin that completely bypassed the temple, said you may deal with God as a believer and as one who throws himself or herself on his mercy. And if John's ministry was from God, then the temple has become passe, obsolete, and unnecessary. And they understood that. 
How do we know that they understood it? Verse 31, we get to eavesdrop on their huddle. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, well, here's the trap. If we say John the Baptist authorities from heaven, he will then say, why didn't you believe John the Baptist? But we're in trouble if we say from men. Because everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Luke actually says they were afraid the people would stone them if they said John the Baptist was from the authority of men. Remember, this is a public confrontation. The Sanhedrin wanted it to be, and now they are completely caught. And they knew it, and they talked about it. Mark, along with Matthew and Luke, reveal that they had to quickly huddle up, strategize, how are we going to answer this? Jesus had just created an impossible dilemma for these charlatans. Of course they did not believe that John the Baptist drew his authority from God or from heaven primarily because he was not authorized by the Sanhedrin, had no permission, neither did Jesus. See the parallel? However, they were smart enough to know if the peop- that the people understood John as a genuine prophet, and if they dissed John, if they said that John wasn't a great prophet, who, by the way, had been wrongly murdered and executed, they thought a riot would occur. These men were deeply concerned about the opinion of the people. The, sh- the focus shifts from how we're going to face off Jesus to what are these people going to say about our answer. They clearly understood <clears throat> that the wrong answer could incense a riot. Now, just let's, let's just let's pull the car over for a second. Mark, remember his words in Mark eleven eighteen. 18? The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him because they were afraid of Jesus, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the, the crowd's loyalty to John kept them from saying anything about John. Now they know the crowd is loyal to Jesus, which they're trying to undo and create a conspiracy where, where he's not the real deal. And after Jesus just torches their motives in the next paragraph of the parable, uh, we'll, we'll read next week. Look at the end of chapter 12, well, end of the story in chapter 12, verse 12. He tells a story. This is, sometimes as we, we learned, he teaches parables to hide truth. This was not a hidden truth. Because in Mark 12, 12, they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood, we'll see this next week, they understood that Jesus spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The Lord will go on in chapter 12, verse 38, to teach, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. I think he's talking about their celebrity uh, attire they were wearing that week with their robes and their fancy uh, uh, adornments. So people would say, oh, look at him. They love that. And the chief seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets. Verse 40, and we'll see this in the widow's might. 
who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. He exposes them or will when we get to this passage as hypocrites, just caring about what people thought, not caring about the truth of their own walk with, with God. So then they concoct a murderous plot to get rid of him. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him secretly by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. As I said, upwards of 100,000 people in and around that temple mount. And if there were some people loyal to Jesus, and they didn't want to incite a riot, but they wanted him dead. They had set a trap to get Jesus sideways with theology, sideways with Scripture, and certainly sideways with them and their authority. But something happens in verse 33, and that is the trap is reversed. Answering Jesus... They said to him, we don't know. Oh, they had an opinion, but they dare not answer it in front of the people. We don't know. This is the core issue Jesus is exposing in these religious and Jewish experts. They should have known They were the theological experts. And they could not provide an answer as to whether John was legitimate or not. Or, even worse, they could answer what they thought, but knew it would get them in trouble. You know, I'm often asked as as a pastor, as a leader here in our our body, uh, about some of you, some of our junior hires and high schoolers, collegians, I love the question. They're asking me, some of our other elders and leaders, about a book, about an author, about a sermon, about a conference. What do you think about this? To look at them and say, I don't know. They came because they expected an answer. They expect that a spiritual leader in the church has some discernment. Don't you think that the crowd around them knew that those Jewish leaders should have had an answer as well. It's a humbling and precious part of ministry. The sheep and a church have every right to expect that those leaders can provide spiritual discernment. Here, these leaders fail. Completely fail. And Jesus said to them, nor... Will I tell you by what authority I do these things? Here's the point. When they say that they do not know if John's ministry was legitimately from God, they are openly admitting that they cannot tell the difference between what is from God and what is from man. What an exposure. If they could not discern that John was truly from God they would never conclude that Jesus was from God. See the logic? That's Jesus' point. The spider is caught in the, only, in the web that, that she spun. Oh, they were so ready to put Jesus in his place. 
And by the way, I would encourage you this week to go ahead and read the next 12 verses in chapter 12 because he doesn't take his foot off the air hose. He tells a parable exposing their hypocrisy. He tells a parable exposing their murderous plot against him. In the end of that, in verse 12, they understood he was talking about them. Jesus refuses to tell them by what authority he does what he does. That's the tacit way of saying, you should know that no one does what I do. No one says what I say. No one speaks with the authority with which I speak. No one raises the dead. No one knows the scripture and can explain the scripture like I do, the son of God, God in the flesh. Can we put it in the vernacular of our junior hires? This is a no-brainer quiz. This is who, is who is married in Grant's tomb. It's obvious that the answer is, of course, Jesus got his authority from God, but they dare not say that in front of anyone. The crux is if they could not, actually, if they would not recognize and affirm that John the Baptist was from God, neither would they recognize Jesus' divine authority either. Wow, just, can we just pause for a minute? Can you think about the difference of the players here? The contrast here between John the Baptist and the Jewish leaders? The Jewish leaders desired to silence and kill Jesus, to protect and promote themselves, their authority and their power and their respect. But in John 3.30, we find out that John says, Jesus must increase, let me decrease. I want to be nothing so that he is everything. The exact opposite response of these men. Do you see a lesson on humility for you and me? Look, we are all proud, ego-centered, self-loving sinners. The pride may be, distinct, may be displayed in different ways and in different categories. Do we follow the pattern of these Sanhedrin or do we follow... John's. May, I think John would have said, may no one ever remember my name again as long as they remember King Jesus. Some implications to consider. By the way, this is really not the end of the story because it spills over into chapter 12 where Jesus is going to tell a story to expose them even further. That's for next week. A couple of implications to think about. Just stepping back and say, Lord, this is your word. How does this impact me? Let me ask you a few questions. First of all, do you recognize and affirm Jesus' authority in your own life? Oh, it's easier to say that we recognize his authority in heaven, his sovereign rule, his sovereign reign, that he's, he's certainly king over in Afghanistan or Pakistan. But, but how about over your life? I think the implication here is if Jesus has tacit, ultimate, sovereign Providential authority, nowhere should that show up any better than in my own life. John 13 says, if we obey him, we love him. John 14, 15, 16 say, to obey is to give him the honor and the glory that he, he deserves. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It's not enough to say, good for Jesus beating the Sanhedrin. 
Friends, you and I are Sanhedrin in our hearts. Constantly stiff-arming the authority of Jesus to tell us who to be and what to do and what not to do. I think it's easy for us when we look at this passage to say, yeah, we're on Jesus' side. Those rascal Sanhedrin, I can't believe they were so heinous. Really? Well, good for you. But are you a member of this group saying, well, Jesus has limited authority in my own life. Oh, he can tell me some things, but not everything. Second question. If you have any position of spiritual leadership, do you desire attention and focus to go on Jesus or on yourself? This is from the the Sunday school teacher, the nursery worker, all the way up to the, the teaching, preaching pastor. Where do you want focus to land on you or on Jesus? John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. I've gotten to know some some very uh, dear theologians and and pastors over the year of, of larger ministries and it's interesting when you spend time with them. The, the most impacting ministry I've had from some of these men are the humble ones. There was one guy, he's a very well-known pastor who you all know, we all know of. I gave him a ride about 10 years ago from one place to another, and I was, you know, the, the nervous guy thinking I was going to turn the signal the wrong way or do something. I, I was very, you know, scared. And I got in the car and he just started talking to me about me. He put me at ease. It was clear that in that moment he cared more about me than he wanted me to care about him. What a blessing. What a ministry. What a gift as a parent who can hear your children and want to talk more about them and their growth, their spiritual health, their stability than your own. See the implication there? One more question. Do you affirm, let me ask you a salvation question. Do you affirm that Jesus is from God as well as God in the flesh? The Sanhedrin missed the point and lost eternity. You have a moment of decision in this second to ask yourself if Jesus is your Lord, your master, your authority, your sovereign, your king, your, your disciple, or your master, the one who calls the shots in your life. Have you given your life to the Savior? Are you a believer? And not just believing the facts. Remember, the gospel is three things. It's facts to believe, theology to understand, and a response to make. Do you believe the facts about Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he said, that those are historically accurate? Do you believe the theology about those facts, that he was God in the flesh, that his death was not like George Washington's or Thomas Jefferson's? His death did something for those who understand that it was in their stead for them instead of them. The wages of sin is death, and he said that I will take the death they deserve for them instead of them, and they don't have to go to hell. And then the response is repentance. You give him the handlebars and the steering wheel of your life. You know what? He knows how to run your life better than you do. He designed you for abundant life to enjoy him, to enjoy him. And you cannot enjoy life truly. You cannot enjoy 
the blessings of this life, you cannot endure the trials that you will undoubtedly face in a way that brings you sustained joy unless he is your Lord and Savior. The failure of these men to recognize the true nature and identity of Jesus led to their plot to crucify him. And they would soon lead the crowds to scream that as well. Your failure to recognize the true nature and identity of Jesus will lead you to eternal destruction in a Christless hell. Boy, don't leave today. Don't, don't leave today without talking to someone around you, someone in our prayer room who can give you clear direction on how your soul can be saved and your heart can be happy in Jesus. There is nothing more important for you to do than what Jesus called these men to do, which was decide what you think about Christ. Fast forward a month. Jesus gathers his men. He's been crucified in the grave three days, rose from the grave. They retreat back up to Galilee. He gathers them together. And this is what he says. All authority, this was in question in our text, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you hear the exact answer to their question <laughs> in that response to the Great Commission? He has all authority, all exousia, all dominion of God himself. He owns, he has. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's obedience. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, the permanent abiding presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there a better thing to possess than that? I think not.